Amen. Saints, would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the Word? We're going to begin in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll turn to Psalm 3. Romans 8 and Psalm 3. As we turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer, even as we just sung in that that hymn concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for the Spirit's work. Our Father in heaven, we, we come to you now with word opened and ears at the ready to hear this word of God. But Lord, we confess that apart from your Spirit, this is a dead letter. That we need the the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and and do more than reverberate in our eardrums, but Lord, to penetrate the mind and pierce the heart. And so we pray that you would do that amongst us this evening, that you would indeed, uh, by this Word and Spirit, convince us of our sins and comfort us with the gospel and do that work which only you can do in making us holy, as you are holy. Lord, would you sanctify us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body." For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to Psalm 3. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. But children, What do you do when you are afraid? What do you do when you're afraid at night? You hear something, go bump in the night, or you you wake up from a bad dream. What do you do? You call out for mom and dad, don't you? You cry out for your mother or your father, to help you. And and hearing your cry, what do they do? Well, they come. They come, and you feel better, don't you? You feel safer. You feel confident that they will protect you, confident that if mom and dad are there, then you have nothing to fear. You rest in them, and that brings about a confidence that changes your behavior. Before, you were fearful and crying out, And now, you're confident, silent, and you can sleep. Once you were frightened, you couldn't sleep. And now, having called out for help, knowing your mom and dad are there, you're confident and can fall back to sleep, knowing that you're safe. And all of us who have had little ones have experienced this. The little one is scared. You go go to them. You, You lay down with them in their bed, and immediately they fall to sleep because they are safe. And this childlike confidence, complete and total trust in another, is instructive for us. Because where do grown-ups go when we hear something go bump in the night? And we wake up from a bad dream. This is exactly what King David was like with God here in Psalm 3. In this psalm, we find David in the midst of an overwhelming crisis. He is afraid. 2 Samuel 15 is the the context of this psalm. I I actually, I should have read that in the title of the psalm and and skipped over it, but 
2 Samuel 15 is the context. It's written the morning after David's initial flight from Absalom. And as we come to this psalm, we find David in a dire crisis, lifting up his heart to God, crying out to him in the night. And in the midst of this crisis, this is key, in the midst of this crisis, not after its resolution, but in the heart of it, when fear and anxiety have him hemmed in on every side, he is able to say, I lay down and slept. How can he say this? What is the source of his confidence? Beloved, what this psalm sets before us is the confidence of a man of God in his faithful, merciful, all-powerful, sovereign God. What we see here is David trusting God, trusting who God is. The little child who's afraid at night, you know after, after you go into them, whatever scared them is still there. It hasn't gone away, right? And yet the difference, all the difference, is not that the thing has gone away, but that you are there. Because if you are present then they are safe. David's first inclination in trouble was to, as a little child, cry out. His first inclination in trouble was prayer. And I wonder, beloved, is that our first inclination to cry out to him? Here's a model prayer for the Christian who is afraid. As we look at this model prayer, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the crisis of prayer in the first two verses. We'll look at the transformation of prayer in verses 3 and 4, and the fruit of prayer in verses 5 through 8. The, the crisis of prayer, the transformation of prayer, the fruit of prayer. Verses 1 and 2, we see the crisis of prayer. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. David begins his prayer with a lament, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. The reason here is because David's foes are many. And they're not just many, but they're increasing. How they've increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. We mentioned already and read and, uh, and, and well, should have read in that heading to the psalm uh, that the context is 2 Samuel 15 where we read of enemies increasing against David. We don't have time to read it this evening, but you should go home and read it and then read Psalm 3 behind it. And of course, if you're familiar with the life of David in the books of Samuel, you know that this is nothing new to him. Enemies. There are always enemies. What's significant about these enemies, what makes his lament and his distress here all the more intense is the particular identity of his enemies. It's his own son, Absalom, and his own trusted advisor, Ahithophel. Many of the people of Israel, there's mutiny, rebellion, civil wars breaking out against David, led by his own beloved and cherished son. Can you imagine that? Some of you maybe can imagine that. The word translated as foes here is, comes from a Hebrew root that emphasize, emphasizes narrowness or, or constriction. You think of a, 
a, a rat snake or a boa or a python, the manner in which it kills its prey. That's the, the imagery. David fled with some 600 people. Absalom had 12,000. and was gaining more by the minute. And you can sense David's panic here. His enemies are multiplying, and everywhere he looks to, to flee to, there they are. They're, they're round about him. They're pressing in upon him. He's on the very brink of being overwhelmed as the coils of the snake are wrapping around him tighter and tighter, cutting off all escape. But we cannot leave it here with the context because it gets worse and more overwhelming. We need, we need greater context. Why are the foes rising against David? Why is David in this crisis where enemies are on all sides of him? Why is his own son murderously rising against him? There's a reason. And of course we have to read this psalm in light of Absalom's rebellion, but but there's something more there, something deeper there. And it's that David is reaping the bitter consequences of a rebellion of his own. His adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of of her husband in 2 Samuel 12. Verses 9 through 13. <clears throat> Prophet Nathan, he, he comes to David. Why? Have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. David's chickens are coming home to roost. And the question arises, yes, but, but didn't David pour out his heart to God in repentance? Isn't that what Psalm 51 is all about? And it is. Wasn't he forgiven? Doesn't God freely forgive those who repent? We read it all over the Bible, don't we? He does. He did and he does. But sometimes the consequences of our sin never leave us till glory. Sometimes we have to bear the scars of our sin till we have new resurrected, glorified bodies. Because God is pleased to remind us of our sin, to humble us under his mighty hand, to cause us to hate sin all the more. David would learn the rest of his days that sin cultivates a bitter harvest. He'd live the rest of his life limping, as it were, with the consequences of his sin, bearing the scars. David's lament here is amplified by bitter accusations made against him. Many are they who say of me, there is no help 
before him in God. Public humiliation. 2 Samuel 16. Shammai follows David and he curses him continually as David travels out of Jerusalem, throwing stones, saying, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man. You rogue. The sin is public. Lord's brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have, re- have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. You failed, David. Your kingdom's broken. Your family is broken. You're a God-forsaken man. There's no help for you in God. You can imagine what David's going through here. Not only the sin of his own family and, 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 and kingdom rebelling against him. He's fleeing for his life. But, but on top of that, the, the weight that, that this is the bitter consequence of his own sin. He's, he's immersed in shame. And now being hounded. Having it all rubbed in. I wonder if if you've been there, a severe trial where your own sin, your own failure has brought shame and public humiliation to you. It's hurt others. Enemies rise against you to seek to undo you because of it. And Satan whispers in your ear, there's no hope for you and God. You are God forsaken. The beauty, beloved, of this psalm is that it gives you warrant, example, and even words to express your griefs and your fears to God, to lament in communion with God. This is the Christian's response to suffering, suffering of any kind. Suffering is the consequence of of anything, your own sin, the malice of Satan in the world. Suffering and prayer go together. Matthew Henry says, perils and frights should drive us to God, not from Him. And you put yourself in David's shoes and you notice there's a, a uh, some translations render it with a threefold use of many, but, but it, he says that my foes, they're, they're increasing. There are many. There are many in these two verses. It highlights the dark circumstances that David was in. It's a, a Hebraic way of saying, Lord, I'm I'm all but overwhelmed here. I'm very nearly drowned. I don't know all of your stories, and I don't know all of your circumstances, but no doubt you can relate to this at some point in time, if not this time. How easy it would have been for David to become disenchanted with God, bitter towards God. I can remember a friend of my mother's. She and her husband had gone on vacation there on the beach in Florida, walking, and her husband was struck by lightning right next to her and killed. She left the church. She wasn't an atheist, but she hated God. She was bitter towards God, disenchanted with God. That's not what David does here. What's David do? David calls out to him as a child calls out for his father in the night. Beloved, do you cry out to God as to a father when you're in deep distress? This is the only 
that this is the Christian's only recourse to cry out as a child to a father. And David cries out to the Lord his God. He says, oh, Lord. And, and I, I, we tend to read over those words, don't we? Oh, Lord. But, but we, could, we could spend the rest of the night on them. Oh, Lord. Rich. David cries out in dependence upon the Creator and, Re- and Redeemer God, O Lord. And you'll notice in your English Bible, Lord is in all caps. It's, it's the divine name, the covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. And we see it again in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 8. It appears six times. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Why does he keep repeating that name of God? Why not other names of God? Why not? Why not Lord of hosts? I need armies of heaven to come and defend me and protect me from my enemies. He, he doesn't say that, though, does he? Well, he cries out the divine name, Yahweh. And he's reminding himself of the great reality of life. What is the great reality of life? Yahweh is the great reality. I am The proper name of God, Yahweh, I am, refers to uh, the self-existence and the immutability of God. Here in this name, he reveals himself as the eternal, independent, and unchangeable God. He reveals himself uh, by this name as immutably enforcing his covenant. And that's what David is appealing to. The immutability, the unchangeableness of his covenant promises. David's appealing to the Lord, to Yahweh. It's an appeal to the God of covenant faithfulness who bound himself with an oath and with with blood to be the God of his people. You remember him making covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. God promised Abraham offspring, land, a nation to be a blessing for the nations. And he did what? He cut a covenant cutting in two those, those five animals, laying the halves across from each other. And when the sun went down, Abraham saw a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot pass between the pieces. And God is saying there, may what has been done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep my covenant promises. He promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish his throne forever. David is appealing to his covenant God. He's appealing to God's own character. He's calling upon the Lord, Yahweh, to live up to his name. David's confidence is in who the Lord is, the the God of covenant faithfulness. And beloved, if this is who the Lord is, who pledges himself to us with an oath, with blood, how much more grounds of confidence do you and I have in the new covenant when it's not the blood of five animals, slain goats and lambs, but when it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been spilt. You see what David's doing here. It, it, it flows right out of this from the passage this morning, isn't it? It's the promises. The promises. He's praying the promises. David had types and shadows. 
We have the fullness of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We have the blood of the new covenant shed, God pledging himself in blood to be our God. This is the God to whom we cry. He will not withhold his hand. Verses 3 and 4, David's overwhelming circumstances did not dim his trust and confidence in God. Here in these two verses, we see him take his eyes off of the circumstances and set them firmly upon God, the God who is Yahweh. And you know trials, difficult circumstances, they have the tendency to consume us, don't they? Can't think of anything else. We can't sleep. We can't eat. Or perhaps that's all we can do is sleep and eat in our distress. And so David deals with this by setting his eyes on the God who is. This is instructive for us. What do we do when life is falling apart? What do we do when, when hell's raining down around us? What do we do when we're in crises? Here's what you do. You think about, well, the attributes of God. You think about the omnipotence of God. Wake up in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, eaten alive by anxieties and worries, and you sit down on the couch and stare out at the darkness and turn this word omnipotent over in your mind. You think about his unchangeability. His unchangeable goodness, wisdom, holiness, justice. You take that fourth question of the catechism and and run it over in your mind again and again and again and again, and it puts everything in perspective. Verses 3 and 4 reveal four things to us about God that transform David's fear to confidence, and beloved, that ought to give us great confidence despite troubling circumstances. He says, but you, O Lord are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried aloud to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. First, he refers to God as a shield. David's fears transformed in prayer to confidence because God is his shield. Now, how would David know that? How would he know that? He wouldn't know it because of his circumstances, because he's still in the thick of it. He's surrounded by enemies. He's vastly outnumbered. And that number, uh, uh, that, 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 that difference in, in number is, is increasing by the minute. How could David know that God is his shield? Not by looking at his circumstances because they screamed in his face otherwise. Shammai is <laughs> screaming it in his face. He knows this. By believing God's word. Genesis 15, again, the Lord told Abraham there, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Deuteronomy 33, 29, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. God is is surrounding David and David's convinced of it, not because of circumstances. David's convinced of it because God's word said so. He remembers these words from Genesis and Deuteronomy, and he's turning them over in his head. 
God's word is faithful and true because God is faithful and true. And David knows that whether good or calamity, it's from the hand of the Lord and it's for his good. Beloved, when all around you is giving away, when you're engulfed in crisis and, and there seems no way out, you can confidently turn your eye to the Lord, the creator of all things, the omnipotent Lord of all who holds all things in the palm of his hand, who's sovereign over all and say, Lord, you're my shield. Secondly, David's fears transformed into confidence because God is his glory. Again, you look at David's circumstances. Is there anything glorious about it? Total humiliation, all the pomp and privilege of royalty has been stripped away from him. He's running barefooted away from his own son. He's been betrayed by his own trusted counselor. His own people have turned against him. His own sin shamefully before him. He has no glory in and of himself. But he proclaims, you, O Lord, are my glory. Let he who glories glory in the Lord. David saying here, you are my all in all. Lord, you're, you're my everything. If, if I have nothing but you, then I have everything. That means exactly what he says there. If I have nothing but you, I have everything. Would that be your thought, beloved, if you were suddenly forced from your home and into the streets? If your closet that's full of clothes taken away and all you have is what's on your back, and it's growing torn and filthier by the day. And your pantry that was full of food, and now you're begging on the street, digging out of the dumpster. That's essentially what, where David's at. Would you say, if I have nothing but you, I have everything. David's been stripped of every earthly good, his shoes, Yet he's resting in the sufficiency of God. Beloved, did not the Lord Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on? Our Father in heaven cares for the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. How much more his precious chosen, blood-bought children. The Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of his people, our all in all, and in him we have everything. Everything. Third, David's fears transformed into confidence because God is his sustainer and his preservation. You, O Lord, are the one who lifts up my head. This is a declaration of the goodness of God and of David's confidence in him. It's a declaration that, that come what may, dark times and deep distresses and troubling circumstances, come what may, God and Jesus Christ is for me and not against me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And then fourthly, the thing that transformed David's fear into confidence was that God hears and answers prayer. I've cried aloud to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Now, who's on God's holy hill? Jerusalem. Who's on God's holy hill? Absalom. Absalom. The very one seeking to destroy David. 
And what David's confessing here is that God's will prevails, not Absalom's. God is upon the holy hill. God reigns, and the God who reigns hears the cries of His servant. Beloved, your cries to the Lord are not only, uh, not only ascend to the Lord, but they're heard by Him, and they're answered by Him, like a father answering the cry of his child in the night. David's prayer transforms his fear into confidence in the Lord because he turned his gaze from his circumstances to his great God. When he reflected upon who God is, his, his countenance was renewed. And you see, David is, is thinking theologically and not circumstantially. And that is how we have got to, to, to change our way of thinking. We've got to think theologically. Does theology matter? Ask David if it mattered. How do you think? Are you focused on your circumstances? Because that will leave you at the mercy of changing winds. And they are ever-changing. You need to learn to think theologically, theocentrically, our sights set upon the Lord at all times, who He is. Again, take that fourth question of the catechism and, and turn it over in your head. The Lord's infinite. That, that one attribute alone. Just puts you in the dust in wonder and worship. He's eternal, unchangeable. Thinking theologically will keep you anchored and safe, even if battered and bruised. How was Luther or Knox able to stand before certain death as they opposed falsehood and immorality? It's because they thought theologically. They lived quorum Deo, before the face of God, and they were confident in their faithful God, so confident that they felt they could face thousands in in the knowledge that if, if the Lord be for us, who can possibly be against us? Not this Catholic queen, Setting our sights on God is transformative. Think theologically. And that's to say that theology is for everyone, and everyone, to to quote Sproul, everyone is a theologian. You are a theologian. You might be a bad one, but you're a theologian. And so... You need to learn to think theologically. This kind of prayer, a crying out to the Lord that transforms our fear into confidence in the Lord by resting upon who the Lord is, produces certain fruits in our lives. Verses 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Calvin, commenting on this passage, wrote, David rather declares how much good he had, uh, how much good he had obtained by means of faith and prayer, namely, the peaceful and undisturbed state of a well-regulated mind. This he expresses metaphorically when he says that he did the ordinary actions of life. The undisturbed state of a well-regulated mind. 
Ian Hamilton says, this is the practical benefit of true theology. Here's the testimony of a man who, whose trust is in God, whose confidence is in God, and it brings him uncommon tranquility in the face of overwhelming hostility. And this is the result, the benefit, the, the fruit of, of, of prayer and of thinking theologically, of allowing the great doctrines of the Bible, the great doctrine of God to shape who we are and how we think and how we act and how we feel. In the midst of overwhelming circumstances, utter destructing, bearing down upon him. Surrounded by enemies. He could have died that night. What did David do? He slept. How could he do this? He could do this because he knew his safety is not in his planning not in his cleverness, not in his defenses, not in his circumstances, but that his safety is found in God himself and in God alone. And so he slept. In Acts 12, Peter rested for preaching the gospel. He's set for trial the next day. He, 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 very likely he's, he's going to be executed. James recently had met the sword. Now Peter's on the chopping block, and, and what do we read in verse 6? On the night before what is most certainly his death, Peter was sleeping. He was sleeping. A well-regulated mind. The first fruit of prayer in crises is a remarkable peace resting in who God is. Verses 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. The second fruit is a confident expectation of God's rescue. God promised, and David believed him. He's clinging to the promises of the Davidic covenant. He woke up in the morning after fleeing Jerusalem, having poured his heart out to God concerning his situation and, and having meditated upon who God is, confident in God's saving help, and he comes to this conclusion, salvation belongs to the Lord. Beloved, there will be times when troubles come from every side. I think it's Spurgeon who says something like, troubles always come in flocks. Sorrow has a numerous family, and such times certainly came to David when it appeared that almost everyone deserted him, gone over to his son, his very own son, whom he loved, sought his life and his property. And David's overwhelmed with enemies, not the least of which is his own sin. And his only recourse was to cry out to God in the night like a child to his father. And this prayer, reflecting upon the character of his God, reflecting on who God is, transforms him from a man of fear to a man of confidence, resting in his Father in heaven. And it bore fruit, a remarkable peace, such that he could rest, a, a confidence in God's protection and salvation. Psalm 3 is the prayer of an embattled man. Beloved, are you an embattled man or an embattled woman, an embattled boy or girl? Are you surrounded by uncircumcir uh, uncertain circumstances that, that seek to undo you? 
Does it seem as though fear might swallow you whole like David so long ago? Cry out to God. Take your eyes off of the troubling circumstances and set them firmly on your God, who is your shield, your glory, your all in all, your sustainer. Troubles will come. I can't guarantee you a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. Some might offer that to you. Good luck with that. I can't offer you that. I can't promise you. I can make a promise, though. I can promise you with 100% certainty that troubles and trials and affliction and distresses and perplexities will come. I can guarantee that. Take your eyes off of them. Set them on God who is your shield. Trouble will come. God proves to be our shield, surrounding us with protective love. He's he's a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is. He is. In trials and troubles and... Think on that. I am. Think on that. And so the Christian must never despair then. William Swan Plummer, the great, though he was from New England actually, but he spent most of his ministry in the South, so the great Southern Presbyterian. He says, despair is the perfection of unbelief. Despair is the perfection of unbelief. Our resolve, beloved, is prayer, knowing that God's able and ready to help us. Commit everything into his hand. Rest upon him, beloved. Rest in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whatever our circumstances, one thing is true. His blessing is upon his people. We read the psalm and marvel. We wonder how, how could David pray like this? How can I possibly pray like this? And, and it's because he knew who his God was. He thought theologically, not circumstantially. And when his circumstances told him despair, 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 the Word of God told him to hope in God. He had a sense of the forgiveness of his sins. He knew that God was for him and not against him. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Beloved, it's the gospel that gives you this kind of confidence, even when your own sin is a part of that equation. You have clearer and better promises than David did. You hear that. David clung to the promise, the Davidic covenant, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have better, clearer promises than David had. David is an example for us of a sinner who prays, but he's more than that. He's also a type, foreshadowing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was the one who was rejected by his family. You remember they called him, he's insane. He's a mental patient. His own disciples abandoned him. His brothers were were set in hard unbelief. The authorities sought his life. Satan oppressed him like no other. He's rejected, scorned, humiliated by his own people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. 
Uh, is there there are, are clear parallels to, to Shimei. Crucify him, crucify him, hounding him as he goes to the cross and as he hangs there. The soldiers whipped him and mocked him. He was spat upon and they nailed his hands and his feet. Those who walked by, Matthew says, blasphemed him and the elders of Israel said there's no salvation for him in God. He's a God-forsaken man. And bearing our legion of sins and paying their penalty, he held out to his Father in heaven. He cried out to his Father in heaven, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what it was to walk in utter darkness and to see no light. I don't know what that is. I suspect that most of us don't know what that is, to walk in utter darkness and see absolutely no light. Jesus knew what it was, but he knew who God is, and he prayed. Prayer characterized the life of the Lord Jesus. In the garden, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. On the cross, he prays for those killing them. Father, forgive them. Jesus knew that his Father would keep him, deliver him, and so he prayed. And in answer to his prayer, God gave him the victory, did he not? Because on the third day, he rose from the dead. He is the one who rose, who ascended, who reigns in glory, and who destroys the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing upon your people. And therefore, pray, Christian. Pray, and God will hear, and he will answer. Christ was heard for his own sake. David was heard, and we are heard for Christ's sake. You have bold access to the Father in Christ. When troubles surround you, rest in Him. He's the forgiver of your sins. He's the sovereign of the universe who never slumbers nor sleeps. We quoted it this morning that you can sleep. You can go home tonight, whatever the circumstances are. You can go home tonight and sleep because He doesn't. And so rest, beloved. Rest. Rest in Him. 